Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all, my brothers and sisters, this morning to bring you the word of God. Uh, Let us pray and then we'll dig into it. Father, we thank you so much for this, this day, this morning, this moment in time where we get to gather together collectively, God, as a body in the midst of many around this world that actually do not have the privilege to do so. And so we thank you, God, that we do have the privilege to pray, to sing together, to preach, Father, and to live out what you have commanded. And Lord, we ask that just by your spirit that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word implanted, that we wouldn't just be merely hearers of your word, but that we would be doers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Text for us this morning is out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 15. The title of this sermon this morning is Laziness Always Leads to Fruitlessness, but a Biblical Work Ethic Cures Idleness. Laziness Always Leads to Fruitlessness. But a biblical work ethic cures idleness. Now, some of my fondest memories uh, as a child and even as an adult have come through uh, the form of gifts uh, from my parents. Uh, From birthdays to holidays, graduations, or even just some random surprise they may give me. Now, don't get it twisted. They didn't spoil me. I I was not spoiled. My wife would... uh, Opposed that, but I was not spoiled, trust me. I did not grow up uh, wearing Jordans. Uh, They did not allow me to wear the latest name brand clothing. Matter of fact, if he did give me some uh, name brand shoe, some of y'all too young for this, but when Grant Hill had a Feli deal and he came out with his new shoes with a patent leather triangle on the side, I wanted those, those things so bad. And matter of fact, he got them for me. But he got them for me after the second Style had already come out about a year later. So yeah, I got clown. I remember when Deion Sanders had a, a pair of shoes, uh, his cross trainers with the Velcro strap around the, the top of all the cold-blooded. I got those about two years late. And uh, actually my foot had grown a little bit, but I still try to rock them though. So yeah, I got clown for those as well. And so, no, I was not spoiled, right? However, All that to say is, relatively speaking, uh, their gifts meant a lot to me. But those weren't the main gifts, the monetary, the physical, uh, what you wear, what you show, things that just uh, fizzle away. There was one gift, however, that I received on a daily basis from from my parents, a gift that I took for granted and that I never considered a blessing until I became an adult. That was the gift of seeing my parents getting up every morning and going to work. My father, like clockwork, uh, would get up at 5.30 a.m. and and read his daily proverb, pray, and and head out. Uh, He was consistent in that. And my mother in the same way. I remember when she decided to go to uh, PA school, and I can recall so many occasions how studious and disciplined she was at studying and preparing uh, from late night into early mornings. 
My parents did not spend a lot of time being idle. Trust me on that. Maybe because they were former military. They had that sort of discipline. Outside of their jobs, they were always active. Active in our extracurricular activities for me and my older sisters. They were active in church and serving others. They were consistent, punctual, and diligent. Uh, that's how I would describe my, my folks. But not only were they committed to their jobs and working hard and providing and nurturing us, but they were committed to the word of God. They were committed to the local church and pointing us to Christ. Not only through their words, but also through modeling. Seeing those characteristics and values carried out by my mom and dad was a great example for my sisters and I to witness and to live by. Now, uh, I would love to say that we followed all their examples and exhortations, but that just wasn't the case. I, I failed many times. And I'm just talking about myself. I can't call my sisters out, but I was the uh, not as obedient one, I guess. But I know I have, uh, I know I gave my folks a lot of scares. I gave them a lot of headaches, high blood pressure, plenty of disappointments that I'm sure of. But one thing I can always hear them saying when I was acting all crazy and wasn't listening, one thing they would always say to me is, boy, we didn't raise you like that. I don't know where you learned that from. <laughs> they do say that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Because now as a more, I'd like to say, a more mature man in Christ, I say that very same thing to my nephews. And I can say that very same thing to my sisters. Our parents didn't raise us like that. Right. If I see something that's contradictory. That's not what we were taught. And I bet a lot of us today could look at all of us up in here and others who are a part of the body of Christ. We look out into this world and we would say, man, that is not what he told us. That is not how he's called us to live. You said you are a believer. You said you follow Christ. You said that you are, based on your baptism, that you are now following in his footsteps. We said based on our profession of faith that we are no longer living the life that we used to live, but in the life that now Christ lives in us. See, we find Paul expressing that very same sentiment and attitude in the text this morning. In this passage to the church of Thessalonica, Paul is trying to tell them you are not following in the traditions that you received from us. You're not following the example that we modeled and lived out in front of you. He reminded them, you must walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. And the question is, why is Paul saying this? Following this text real quick. I'll read this for us. Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, it says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you received now, for excuse me, for you yourselves know <clears throat> how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. 
nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this example. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed and do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. But warn him as a brother. Paul is writing this letter because he has caught wind of the mischief going on with some of the members in the church of Thessalonica, <clears throat> which seemed to be a major theme in these two letters in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. See, there were some men who were living unruly, disruptive, undisciplined lives, and I'm not saying gender-wise men, but it could be men and women, okay? The, they were unwilling to work, and as a result, becoming busybodies, troublemakers, Busybody could translate into meddling in other people's affairs or being a gossip, talking about others and their business, some that were unfactual or exaggerated. And so because their messiness and because uh, this wasn't the first occurrence that has happened, the apostle writes with a strong command how they ought to deal with such people in the church. We should not ignore the fact that our uh, passage both begins in verse 6 and ends in 14 through 15 with exhortations not just to the idol but to the rest of the church. See, the rebuke isn't addressed directly to the Christians who are living improperly, uh, uh, beloved, uh, but it, it's pretty brief when he does that, when he rebukes them. But the bulk of the passage uh, contains Paul's counsel to the church about how to deal with disruptive persons how to deal with folks who are not following the apostolic examples and instructions. Thus, the passage deals as much, if not more, uh, with the exercise of church discipline as it does with the specific problem of idleness. And so let's look at this text in verse 6. First, he commands them in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, since Christians are those who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, he deserves their absolute obedience as their Lord, right? We see that in Philippians chapter 2. See, don't follow or submit, Paul is saying, don't follow or submit to this command simply out of respect for my apostleship. Submit to the lordship of Christ. He's your Lord, not me. You don't submit to the pastoralship of the pastor. You want to respect it, 
But ultimately, the pastor is not your God. Anybody, mother or father, but God is your God. Jesus is your Lord, right? Paul evoked the authority of the name in an effort to remind the church of their obligation of obedience to the Lord and to ensure obedience by emphasizing that the important commands they were about to receive were not Pauline. It wasn't his opinion, but the commands of Christ. What is the command, however? The command is to keep away from every person who leads an unruly life, who was walking in idleness. He says, refuse to associate with any fellow believers who persist in or continues to live contrary to the traditions they had received from Paul and his co-workers. Paul, I don't believe, is commanding a group of people in the church, a certain sect or individuals. No, I believe he's talking to everyone in the church. I say that because he's telling them to practice a form of church discipline. The exercise of discipline was and is the responsibility of the entire church, the church as a whole, not leadership alone, for the sake of unity in the body. The whole church is involved in this process. So it is imperative that collaborative action by the entire congregation was to take place, otherwise it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. You can't have one group ostracizing uh, the offenders. And then another group still having regular fellowship and breaking bread with them. That would be confusing. That would be antithetical. Uh, That would be working against the collaborative efforts of the entire body. How would a person then feel shame if you got one party still inviting them in and hanging out like he's all good and the other party not? The body must be working together on that. And what happens is... When you got a split, uh, that sort of punishment or discipline ends up being totally ineffective because the offenders wouldn't feel the weight of the sin. They're not going to feel the weight of the sin in a sense to, re- to repent. See, by ostracizing or disassociating such persons, the church as a body would be able to express its whole disapproval in a matter that the offender could not dismiss lightly. Ultimately, the goal of the church is to see the sinful one repent. That's why we do that. And return to Christ-likeness. Return to a Christ-like lifestyle. And to have them return and to be restored to the fellowship of the believers. That's why we as a body, that's what we pray for. That's what we hope for. That's what we desire. Collective, collaborative effort. Everybody be on one accord. But why shouldn't we associate with these brothers? I'm going to skip down to verse 11, and then we're going to work our way back. He says we shouldn't associate with these types of people within the church, believers in the church, because verse 11, he says what? They're idle. They're not busy at work, but they're busy at being busy bodies. He says because they don't work at all. Paul here explains the exact nature of the problem that motivated him to prescribe disciplinary action against the disorderly. Meaning, they were not trying and are unwilling 
and instead they're acting like busybodies, meddlers, gossipers, disrupting the people's lives. These folks were engaged in unproductive behavior. So keep away from the idol. Keep away from those because they're unproductive and they're troublemakers. Now, one prayed earlier that is what we consider some of these uh, small sins are acceptable sins. Being unproductive, but being lazy, being idle. We don't often look at it as something that's small, but yet can grow and infect the entire body. We need to address it as if it is very, very significant, because it is. He says, disassociate with them. He says, I, I, I'm sure some of you have heard that an idle mind is the devil's playground, right? It is, and it can be. See, this passage brings a lot of the truth to whoever coined that phrase. Idleness leads to becoming a busy body. Unproductive laziness eventually leads to disorder and disruption. Idleness leads to daydreaming. Laziness, idleness leads to all types of mischief, crime. It leads to lust. Come on over here, David. Y'all remember David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the spring when kings should have been out to war? David goes up, wakes up from a good nap, goes up on the top of the rooftop, looks over, sees something nice, begins to lust. And then that idleness, that lust leads to adultery for this brother. And that same thing can lead a lot of us into the same action of adultery, pornography, looking at everything that we shouldn't be looking into. It leads to unwise spending habits when you're sitting around not doing nothing. You start searching the internet, and then lust ain't just sexual. Lust can be a lot of things, right? So you start looking at stuff that you want and desire, and so you start making emotional purchases and things of that nature to fulfill some sort of void that hasn't been filled by Christ. And so it leads to those type of things. It leads to neglect of responsibilities. It just leads to all those types of unfruitfulness. And how do they get to this point? <laughs> How did they drift into idleness? How did and how do we drift into idleness as well? When they stepped away from the traditions that they were taught, which is when they stepped away from the book. When we stepped away from scripture, when we stepped away from the godly models that were before us, and started trying to do our own thing. That's how that drift happens. That's how it happened for them. See, the apostolic teachings and examples of a disciplined work life and self-support were modeled before them. We see in verses, now we're going back, in verses 7 through 10. says, we did not act in an undisciplined matter among you. No. In verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So they strived, one, to practice self-control in all areas of life. They didn't look out for their own personal interests, but considered others more highly than themselves by working day and night as not to be a burden on the church. And they did this for the sake of modeling how they should act. So two things to be aware of, beloved. You see, although we can be in a good church uh, with godly people, 
and the have good pastors who are excellent models and who labor at caring, caring for our souls. All of us are always one step away from the possibility of drifting, from drifting into idleness. It can be a very subtle, it can be very quiet, very nonchalant. You may not even notice it immediately, but others around you may. Your demeanor slightly changes. Your talk becomes slightly different. Uh, your once consistent habit of gathering with the saints every Lord's Day and even midweek becomes infrequent. Your attitude toward Christian concerns become apathetic or frequently overly critical. Or you may be becoming progressively concerned about civilian affairs and all other cares of the world consume you. Your desire for prayer and the word slowly diminishes. And the rebellious culture of the world doesn't grieve your heart as much as it used to. You become desensitized. And then your convictions evolve into compromises. All the while thinking that you're okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 12 tells us, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We always must be concerned. Always must be attentive uh, to our hearts, our minds, what is going on. Because we stand the possibility of drifting. Secondly, leaders, pastors, leaders, teachers uh, must strive to always be an example to the flock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body and keep it in, in under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So we, those who preach and labor, uh, we must live in such a way that our lives do not contradict what we preach and teach, therefore disqualifying us, or even worse, causing one of you to stumble. We must be self-controlled in mind, speech, and actions. Even as Paul urges them to follow his, their traditions, in the same breath, he is also urging us to follow the apostolic traditions of the scripture. See, disciples, when he's calling them to follow, follow us as we model before you, Christ-likeness. See, disciples were obligated to imitate those who had established them in the faith. See, the Apostle Paul isn't being shallow or arrogant here. He's not talking about, I need to build up my followers. I'm trying to build up my team of poplites. He ain't talking about that. You know, teachers of that day were expected to instruct their disciples, both with their words and with the manner of their life. See, in return, disciples were expected not only to understand the wisdom of their teachers, but to emulate their wise behavior as well. And any disciple of Christ that isn't following in this manner it's operating the sin, however big or small that it may be. And because of uh, these believers' unrepentant lifestyle, Paul says that they must break fellowship with them. So let's transition back to 9 and 10. When he says, it was not because we didn't have the right 
but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul here is pointing out that his refusal to live off the church did not result from a lack of authority. Like, why? What did we model? How come we didn't accept this from the church? This is why. He says, but it wasn't because we didn't have the authority. He did, in fact, have the authority as an apostle to to expect the church to care for his physical needs. So he making sure, hey, now, church, this is not an excuse for you not to take care of those who labor. No, in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. See, he chose, however, not to exercise that right. What kind of example did Paul have in mind here? Well, I think the context calls for an example of one who was not disruptive, one. And then two, one who provides for his own needs rather than attaching himself like a leech to the vein of kindness of others. See, it was common, and Paul's aware of this, he knows that it was common for teachers in the day to receive compensation from those they taught. However, it, w- it often resulted in charges that the teachers cared nothing for the disciples or about their disciplines, but only cared about the compensation. And they did so solely for the exaltation and material gain that it brought them. That's all the teachers of the day were concerned about, the material gain and the exaltation, the platform. They didn't care about anything that they taught. And so they were leery of Paul, and Paul's aware of this, and that's why he's saying this. He says, therefore, because of that, this is why we can have so many unbelievers teaching in seminaries across this country, teaching in uh, divinity schools all across this country, even in churches, just for compensation and notoriety, for acclaim. They don't care about anything that they teach. They don't believe in the exclusivity of Christ. They don't believe in the triune God. They don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't believe in, in his deity. No. It's all for an intellectual exercise and receiving notoriety for the scholarship. That's all it is. It's crazy. And so Paul faced similar criticisms. He faced similar criticisms. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you read 3 through 12 there, it implies that he had critics in Thessalonica who were attempting to try and convince the church that Paul was motivated by greed. That he was motivated by greed, teaching whatever would earn him human approval and financial support. However, Paul answered these charges with the evidence of his life. And that's all we can do. With the evidence of our lives. See, he routinely, routinely refused church support in favor of working to supply his own needs so that he could supply the gospel to the church freely. Because in verse, uh, in verse uh, 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. There's a conduct. That's how we live. And then chapter 2, verse 3, back in this text, in verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. 
And he takes it further right here. If anyone does not work, let him not eat. Because we would do the same thing. See, the situation led Paul to command and urge the idle to eat their own bread and work quietly. See, Paul right here is putting an extra emphasis, an extra measure of emphasis on the statement right here, letting the congregation know how serious he is. See, he commands and exhorts the disorderly to self-reformation and repentance, to change themselves, to change their lifestyle in the name, and not, not just for his sake, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, change it. Amen. Because that's who we work for now. You see, when you were an unbeliever, and I don't know, maybe some of you were still very good and diligent workers when you didn't know Christ. I wasn't. But when Christ saved me, see, when, when, when Christ comes into your life, when he redeems you, when he saves you from the muck and the mire and brings you into the glorious light, he not only gives you a new name and a new identity, but he ought, by the Spirit, give you a new ethic, work ethic, Okay? He changes your entire life because when you once didn't have anybody to work for, when you didn't know why you were doing what you were doing, Christ now is the one. He is the aim of every single part of our lives. He's why we do what we do. He's why we live how we live. He's the aim. And so if you don't have it now, Christ gives you one. So if you say, man, I don't know why I'm doing this. Oh, man, I'm living for Christ. I'm living for Christ. He's the aim of our lives. And so he is trying to tell them, in the name of Jesus Christ, reform yourselves. In the name of Jesus Christ, repent. Which is the fruit of which will be seen in our work if they do it in quietness and eating their own bread. Because he says, if you eat your own bread, if you work in quietness, that is a result of your repentance. The ultimate goal of people working quietly is that they should provide for themselves and stop being a drain on the community of believers as a whole. And it was probably more of the wealthier members that they were taking advantage of anyways. See, Paul was saying persons who work quietly to earn their own keep, will not only avoid depleting the church's resources unnecessarily, but also are more likely to earn the respect of those outside the church and less likely to find themselves in need. You see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. See, this is the Christian work ethic. He wants them to model that. I I want you to be spoken well of by outsiders. Do not let your good be spoken evil of. Right? Five things about work. Five things about work. Five things to remember. One, work is a gift and a mandate. God created man in his image with, uh, with characteristics like him. We see it in Genesis chapter 1. He created man to work with him in the world. God planted a garden and put Adam in it to cultivate it and maintain it. Also, Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over the earth. What does this, excuse me, what does this original work mandate mean? To cultivate means to foster growth and to improve. To maintain means to preserve from failure or decline. To subdue means to exercise control and discipline. Rule over means to administer, take responsibility for, and make decisions. This mandate applies to all of our vocations. That's how we live by 
And number two, work is not a curse. I'm sure we've said it in the past. This job is horrible. This might be a curse. No, not necessarily. See, work is not a curse. The ground that we work on is. See, God cursed the ground. Work became difficult. The word toil is used implying challenge, difficulty, exhaustion, and struggle. See, work itself was and is still good. But man must expect that it will be accomplished by the sweat of his brow because of sin. Also, the result will not always be positive. No, it won't. You won't always see anything. Although man will eat the, the, the plants of the field, the field will also produce thorns and thistles at times. Hard work and effort will not always be rewarded in the way the laborer expects or desires. Number three, work should be productive. Genesis 1 verse 31 declares that when God viewed the fruit of his labor, he called it very good. God examined and assessed the quality of his work. And when he uh, determined <coughs> that he had done a good job, <coughs> excuse me, he took pleasure in the outcome. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 13 it says, And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor. For these are gifts from God. By these passages, it is apparent that work should be productive. We should conduct our work in a way that produces the highest quality outcome. Four, our work, or the lack thereof, exposes our character. Our work, or lack thereof, exposes our character. Work reveals something about the one doing the work. It reveals underlying character, underlying motivations, skills, abilities, and personality traits. Jesus echoed this principle in Matthew chapter 7 when he declared that bad trees, yep, bad trees produce only bad fruit, and good trees only good fruit. Enough said. Number five, our work further represents God to the world. Psalm 19. It says that God reveals himself to the world by his work. And Isaiah 43 indicates that God made man for his own glory. Therefore, work done by Christians should give the world an accurate picture of God in righteousness, faithfulness, and excellence. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Amen. 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 So now, Paul then returns from addressing the disorderly and now speaks directly to the other members concerning what they are to do in the face of disobedience in verses 14 through 15. He says, don't grow weary in doing good. The meaning here isn't, hey, don't get tired out physically in what you're doing. But rather, don't become emotionally drained and discouraged in doing good toward others because of the exploitation of the idol. Paul may have feared that exploitation by the idol might have discouraged the church that they would cease all benevolence when doing well results in being exploited, 
it can oftentimes become discouraging. It can be a disheartening experience. We've seen examples of maybe some churches who were serving or trying to give funds or trying to help with food or clothing or any nonprofit when they maybe feel taken advantage of, they shut the whole operation down. And yet, there are ones who actually need that help. They can no longer receive that aid because of uh, those who are idle or those who are disrespectful, those who are disruptive, taking advantage of the, uh, of the work, of the service. And so Paul doesn't want that to happen. See, it was bad enough that the idol had robbed the church of resources. <clears throat> it would be even worse if their actions also robbed the church of its willingness to engage in Christian benevolence. And more importantly, that... More importantly than not allowing weariness to cripple your good works, Paul is saying don't, don't allow yourself to be tainted by the examples of the lazy, idle, and the busybodies either. You see, in the process of saying let's just cut this thing off, that might not necessarily be the case. Sometimes uh, when people are doing us wrong, we can then take on some of their characteristics by talking bad about them and we end up gossiping. Yeah, yeah, I guess y'all experienced that before. <laughs> I can't stand this. Yeah. We, we, we can get there, right? So he's like, look, I know you want to complain, but make sure in the midst of it all that you do not sin as well. Be angry, but do not sin in your anger, right? We must practice self-control. We must try to maintain the godliness as much as we can. People, yes, they will irritate us. They will want to pull us along with them. But yes, we must try to maintain the dignity of Christ's likeness as much as we can, as much as possible. Amen. Yes, so the disorderly, they had rejected the teaching about labor that the Christian messengers had given them while in the city. And also, they had not responded uh, when the same instruction was repeated in the first letter. They continued to do their own thing. They did not change their ways even when admonished by other members of the congregation. And so he says, moving forward, hey, if anyone does not obey what we say, take note, okay, jot down their name, and then disassociate from them. Be specific of who they are, know who they are. Because remember, we're taking note, we're trying to jot down their name, because it's not just you. Everybody needs to be aware of who this unruly person is, right? Amen. Take down their name, disassociate from them, because they are unrepentant. And ultimately, we want to disassociate from them because redemptive, we have to have a redemptive goal in mind. We must be aware that it's not just for the sake of correction. And we have to be aware of our motivations when we do these things, when we operate in such a case. Because we can uh, possibly just leave the brother or the sister at bay and forget all about them. But the redemptive goal has to be in mind there. Why am I disassociated from you? Because my desire is for you 
to understand and see the ills of your ways so that you will repent, so that you would come back into the fellowship. That goal has to be in mind because if it is not in mind, I'll leave you out there and never do anything with you. And now I'm also in sin as well in that point in, that point in time. We must keep the redemptive goal in mind when we disassociate ourselves from others. And so these people continued, uh, must continue to be considered, beloved, in verse, when, so when you look at verses 14 through 15, he says, we must consider them brothers and not enemies. See, the people have to continue to be considered members of the family of faith and not outside the boundaries of salvation. Yeah, see, the, the discipline prescribed here is not quite the same as excommunication. The concern that motivated this, uh, this call to separate is not that the, the rest of the church will be infected by the behavior of the unruly, but that the unruly will respond to the discipline. See, the, the, the separation implies that other members of the church should not meet with the disorderly. Therefore, they would be excluded even from the common meal of the assembly. See, and moreover, the, the members of the church are not to engage them socially. Although the call to admonish them implies that they would not be cut off from all communication either. So what does this mean? We're not engaging them socially as if we are fellowshipping with you as if you are a true, mature believer. We're hanging out without any type of correction and conversation about your sin. The admonishment means when we do run into them, we'll be asking, brother, sister, how are you doing with this? Hey, this action right here, have you repented from that? Are you working through that? How are you dealing with That's the admonishment. So every engagement that you have needs to be on the basis of that. But I'm not going to engage you in such a way that I'm thinking that you're all good. All right. Because Amen. that will allow you to think that you are all good. All right. right? And so, <laughs> man, and that's, that's tough, y'all. That's tough. And so the apostle warns the church at Thessalonica not to express hostility toward the disorderly. See, because you don't do that because if you do express hostility, you are treating them as an enemy. And if they are an enemy, you're not going to admonish them. Does that make sense? You don't admonish the enemy because they're unsaved. You evangelize the enemy. That's what we do. But here's the thing, too. we got to be very careful with this. So he says, don't treat them as an enemy, but a brother. Oftentimes, in Christendom, not just in the local church, but in the universal church all across this world, we are treating folks in the Christian faith like enemies. They may disagree on certain doctrinal beliefs. They may disagree on certain how we interpret certain the theological principles. Whatever the case may be, they may disagree how we operate in the church on ecclesiology. And then we call them out on all social media platforms. We call them out in conferences, whatever the case is. And we treat these folks like enemies, as if they are not saved. And Paul said, no, 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 look, we are not going to go there. 
This is the brothers and the sister in Christ. Okay, we want to love on them, yes, still. We're going to admonish them, yes. We're going to disassociate from them so that they may, so that they may feel ashamed because they have to feel the weight of their sin. But we are not going to treat them as if they are heretics. So what does that say? We have to be careful and be aware of how we treat others, how we respond to sin. And so he warned, he warns them. Do not be hostile. Do not be hostile. Do not attack. He exhorts the he, she, or they. No, don't do that. But warn them as a believer. And although the person is excluded from the community, some contact continues that gives the members of the church further opportunity to admonish them and warn them. Hopefully it will convict them and correct them of their conduct. And the person continues to be a member of the community of faith. That's what they are. Now hear this, hear this. The admonishing that the one who was unwilling to work shall not eat only concerns unwillingness to work rather than the inability to work. There's a difference. As we, Pastor Omar has been preaching through James 1, James 1 verse 27, describes that true religion in part <clears throat> as looking after orphans and widows in their distress. Needy children and widows, the disabled, those with special needs, the elderly, and others who cannot earn a living are deserving of much help from the church. And as believers, it is important that we be known for our strong work ethic and helping those in true need. Matthew 5 says, we should let our light shine before others that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. And so, beloved, uh, we've seen the, the fruitless results of laziness and idleness uh, as we have observed from Paul's letter and the impact that it, can, that it can have on the church. But we've also been reminded of our responsibility and how we ought to treat those in idleness. And then not only how we should treat those, but then reminds us of our own responsibility as Christ's ambassadors on our jobs, in schools, at home, because we ought to fight against idleness at all times by working unto the Lord. Amen. And so what does this mean for us? Well, if you're on your job, you're working to the Lord. He's your aim. If you are a young cat in school, you do your homework, you study unto the Lord. If you're at home and you're a child, well, you better do those chores unto the Lord. If you are not working, whether you might be a stay-at-home mother or a spouse, whatever, you work the house unto the Lord. Right? We must abstain from being busybodies. It can stain the church. And so what do we do? We work unto the Lord. And when we work unto the Lord, he is the remedy for idleness. Amen. 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 Father, we thank you for this reminder in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. How we ought to work unto you, Father. How we operate in the local body, Father. And how it is all for the glorification of you. And how it should bring us who are in sin to repent, Father. And dispose of our wicked ways 
because all that you have given us, God, we ought to be responsible for. We ought to be good stewards over it. And we want to work in such a way that it produces the results that are good for us and glorifying to you. Help us as a church, Father, not to be stained by any of these examples, God, but to work against these examples of laziness and idleness that Paul points out for us. Father, we want to be pleasing in your sight. And we don't want the world to see us uh, as they are, but to see us as a unique people called by you. So that they would ask, what must they do to be saved? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.